0: Black Beauty, the Autobiography of a Horse By Anna Sewell, English Quaker, 1820-1878 33. A London Cab Horse Jeremiah Barker was my new master's name But as everyone called him Jerry, I shall do the same Polly, his wife was just as good a match as a man could have. She was a plump, trim, tidy little woman with smooth, dark hair, dark eyes, and a merry little mouth. The boy was twelve years old, a tall, frank, good-tempered lad, and little Dorothy, Dolly they called her, was her mother over again at eight years old. They were all wonderfully fond of each other, and I never knew such a happy, merry family before or since. Jerry had a cab of his own, and two horses, which he drove and attended to himself. His other horse was a tall, white, rather large-boned animal called Captain. He was old now, but when he was young he must have been splendid. He had still a proud way of holding his head and arching his neck. In fact, he was a high-bred, fine-mannered, noble old horse, every inch of him. He told me that in his early youth he went to the Crimean War, He belonged to an officer in the cavalry and used to lead the regiment. I will tell more of that hereafter. The next morning, when I was well-groomed, Polly and Dolly came into the yard to see me and make friends. Harry had been helping his father since the early morning and had stated his opinion that I should turn out a regular brick. Polly brought me a slice of apple and Dolly a piece of bread and made as much of me as if I had been the black beauty of olden time. It was a great treat to be petted again and talked to in a gentle voice, and I let them see as well as I could that I wished to be friendly. Polly thought I was very handsome and a great deal too good for a cab, if it was not for the broken knees. Of course there's no one to tell us whose fault that was, said Jerry, and as long as I don't know, I shall give him the benefit of the doubt, for a firmer, neater stepper I never rode. I'll call him Jack. "'After the old one. Shall we, Polly?' "'Do,' she said, for I like to keep a good name going. "'Captain went out in the cab all the morning. "'Harry came in after school to feed me and give me water. "'In the afternoon I was put into the cab. "'Jerry took as much pains to see if the collar and bridle fitted comfortably "'as if he had been John Manley all over again. "'When the crupper was let out a hole or two, it all fitted well. "'There was no check ray, no curb.' Nothing but a plain ring snaffle. What a blessing that was. After driving through the side street, we came to the large cab stand where Jerry had said good night. On one side of this wide street were high houses with wonderful shop fronts, and on the other was an old church and churchyard surrounded by iron palisades. Alongside these iron rails, a number of cabs were drawn up, waiting for passengers. Bits of hay were lying about on the ground. Some of the men were standing together talking, some were sitting on their boxes reading the newspaper, and one or two were feeding their horses with bits of hay and giving them a drink of water. We pulled up in the rank at the back of the last cab. Two or three men came round to look at me and pass their remarks. Very good for a funeral, said one. Too smart-looking, said another, shaking his head in a very wise way. You'll find out something wrong one of these fine mornings and my name isn't Jones. Well, said Jerry pleasantly, I suppose I need not find it out till it finds me out, eh? And if so, I'll keep my spirits a little longer. Then there came up a broad-faced man, dressed in a great grey coat with great grey cape and great white buttons, a grey hat and a blue comforter loosely tied round his neck. His hair was grey too, but he was a jolly-looking fellow, and the other men made way for him. He looked me all over, as if he had been going to buy me, and then straightening himself up with a grunt, he said, He's the right sort for you, Jerry. I don't care what you gave for him. He'll be worth it. Thus, my character was established on the stand. This man's name was Grant, but he was called Grey Grant or Governor Grant. He had been the longest on that stand of any of the men, and he took it upon himself to settle matters and stop disputes. He was generally a good humoured, sensible man, but if his temper was a little out, as it was sometimes when he had drunk too much, nobody liked to come too near his fist, for he could deal a very heavy blow. The first week of my life as a cab horse was very trying. I had never been used to London. And the noise, the hurry, the crowds of horses, carts, and carriages that I had to make my way through made me feel anxious and harassed. But I soon found that I could perfectly trust my driver, and then I made myself easy and got used to it. Jerry was as good a driver as I had ever known, and what was better, he took as much thought for his horses as he did for himself. He soon found out that I was willing to work and do my best, and he never laid the whip on me unless it was gently drawing the end of it over my back when I was to go on. But generally, I knew this quite well by the way in which he took up the reins, and I believe his whip was more frequently stuck up by his side than in his hand. In a short time, I and my master understood each other as well as horse and man can do. In the stable, too, he did all that he could for our comfort. The stalls were the old-fashioned style, too much on the slope, but he had two movable bars fixed across the back of our stalls, so that at night, and when we were resting, he just took off our halters and put up the bars, and thus we could turn about and stand whichever way we pleased, which is a great comfort. Jerry kept us very clean, and gave us as much change of food as he could, and always plenty of it. And not only that, but he always gave us plenty of clean, fresh water, which he allowed to stand by us both night and day, except, of course, when we came in warm. Some people say that a horse ought not to drink all he likes, but I know if we are allowed to drink when we want it, we drink only a little at a time, and it does us a great deal more good than swallowing down half a bucketful at a time because we have been left without till we are thirsty and miserable. Some grooms will go home to their beer and leave us for hours with our dry hay and oats and nothing to moisten them. Then, of course, we gulp down too much at once, which helps to spoil our breathing and sometimes chills our stomachs. But the best thing we had here was our Sundays for rest. We worked so hard in the week that I do not think we could have kept up to it but for that day. Besides, we had then time to enjoy each other's company— It was on these days that I learned my companion's history. 34. An Old War Horse Captain had been broken in and trained for an army horse. His first owner was an officer of cavalry going out to the Crimean War. He said he quite enjoyed the training with all the other horses, trotting together, turning together, to the right hand or the left, halting at the word of command or dashing forward at full speed at the sound of the trumpet or signal of the officer. He was, when young, a dark, dappled iron-gray and considered very handsome. His master, a young, high-spirited gentleman, was very fond of him and treated him from the first with the greatest care and kindness. He told me he thought the life of an army horse was very pleasant, but when it came to being sent abroad over the sea in a great ship, he almost changed his mind. That part of it, said he, was dreadful. Of course, we could not walk off the land into the ship, so they were obliged to put strong straps under our bodies, and then we were lifted off our legs in spite of our struggles and were swung through the air over the water to the deck of the great vessel. There, We were placed in small, close stalls, and never for a long time saw the sky or were able to stretch our legs. The ship sometimes rolled about in high winds, and we were knocked about and felt bad enough. However, at last it came to an end, and we were hauled up and swung over again to the land. We were very glad and snorted and neighed for joy when we once more felt firm ground under our feet. We soon found that the country we had come to was very different from our own, and that we had many hardships to endure besides the fighting. But many of the men were so fond of their horses that they did everything they could to make them comfortable, in spite of snow, wet, and all things out of order. But what about the fighting, said I? "'was not that worse than anything else?' "'Well,' said he, "'I hardly know. "'We always liked to hear the trumpet sound "'and to be called out and were impatient to start off, "'though sometimes we had to stand for hours, "'waiting for the word of command. "'And when the word was given, "'we used to spring forward as gaily and eagerly "'as if there were no cannonballs, bayonets or bullets.' "'I believe so long as we felt our rider firm in the saddle and his hand steady on the bridle, "'not one of us gave way to fear, "'not even when the terrible bombshells whirled through the air and burst into a thousand pieces. "'I, with my noble master, went into many actions together without a wound, "'and though I saw horses shot down with bullets, pierced through with lances,' "'and gashed with fearful sabre-cuts, "'though we left them dead on the field "'or dying in the agony of their wounds. "'I don't think I feared for myself. "'My master's cheery voice as he encouraged his men "'made me feel as if he and I could not be killed. "'I had such perfect trust in him "'that while he was guiding me "'I was ready to charge up to the very cannon's mouth. "'I saw many brave men cut down.' Many fall mortally wounded from their saddles. I had heard the cries and groans of the dying. I had cantered over ground slippery with blood and frequently had to turn aside to avoid trampling on wounded man or horse. But until one dreadful day, I had never felt terror. That day I shall never forget. Here, old captain paused for a while and drew a long breath. I waited, and he went on. It was one autumn morning, and as usual, an hour before daybreak, our cavalry had turned out, ready caparisoned for the day's work, whether it might be fighting or waiting. The men stood by their horses, waiting, ready for orders. As the light increased, there seemed to be some excitement among the officers, and before the day was well begun, we heard the firing of the enemy's guns Then one of the officers rode up and gave the word for the men to mount, and in a second every man was in his saddle, and every horse stood expecting the touch of the rein or the pressure of his rider's heels, all animated, all eager. But still we had been trained so well that except by the champing of our bits and the restive tossing of our heads from time to time, it could not be said that we stirred. My dear master and I were at the head of the line, And as all sat motionless and watchful, he took a little stray lock of my mane which had turned over on the wrong side, laid it over on the right, and smoothed it down with his hand. Then, patting my neck, he said, "'We shall have a day of it today, Bayard, my beauty, but we'll do our duty as we have done.' He stroked my neck that morning more, I think, than he had ever done before, quietly, on and on, as if he were thinking of something else.' I loved to feel his hand on my neck and arched my crest proudly and happily. But I stood very still, for I knew all his moods, and when he liked me to be quiet and when gay. I cannot tell all that happened on that day, but I will tell of the last charge that we made together. It was across a valley, right in front of the enemy's cannon. By this time we were well used to the roar of heavy guns... "'the rattle of musket fire and the flying of shot near us. "'But never had I been under such a fire "'as we rode through on that day. "'From the right, from the left, and from the front, "'shot and shell poured in upon us. "'Many a brave man went down. "'Many a horse fell, flinging his rider to the earth. "'Many a horse without a rider ran wildly out of the ranks, "'then terrified at being alone.' "'with no hand to guide him, "'came pressing in among his old companions "'to gallop with them to the charge. "'Fearful as it was, "'no one stopped, "'no one turned back. "'Every moment the ranks were thin, "'but as our comrades fell, "'we closed in to keep them together, "'and instead of being shaken "'or staggered in our pace, "'our gallop became faster and faster "'as we neared the cannon. "'My master,' My dear master was cheering on his comrades with his right arm raised on high when one of the balls whizzing close to my head struck him. I felt him stagger with the shock, though he uttered no cry. I tried to check my speed, but the sword dropped from his right hand. The rein fell loose from the left, and sinking backward from the saddle, he fell to the earth. The other riders swept past us. And by the force of their charge, I was driven from the spot. I wanted to keep my place by his side and not leave him under that rush of horses' feet, but it was in vain. And now, without a master or a friend, I was alone on that great slaughter ground. Then fear took hold on me, and I trembled as I had never trembled before. And I too, as I had seen other horses do, "'Tried to join in the ranks and gallop with them, "'but I was beaten off by the swords of the soldiers. "'Just then a soldier whose horse had been killed under him "'caught at my bridle and mounted me, "'and with this new master I was again going forward. "'But our gallant company was cruelly overpowered, "'and those who remained alive after the fierce fight for the guns "'came galloping back over the same ground.' Some of the horses had been so badly wounded that they could scarcely move from the loss of blood. Other noble creatures were trying on three legs to drag themselves along, and others were struggling to rise on their forefeet when their hind legs had been shattered by shot. After the battle, the wounded men were brought in, and the dead were buried. And what about the wounded horses, I said? Were they left to die? No. The army farriers went over the field with their pistols and shot all that were ruined. Some that had only slight wounds were brought back and attended to. But the greater part of the noble, willing creatures that went out that morning never came back. In our stables, there was only about one in four that returned. I never saw my dear master again. I believe he fell dead from the saddle. I never loved any other master so well. I went into many other engagements, but was only once wounded, and then not seriously. And when the war was over, I came back again to England, as sound and strong as when I went out. I said, I have heard people talk about war as if it was a very fine thing. Ah, said he, I should think they never saw it. No doubt it is very fine when there is no enemy, when it is just exercise and parade and sham fight. Yes, it is very fine then. But when thousands of good, brave men and horses are killed or crippled for life, it has a very different look. Do you know what they fought about? said I. No, he said. That is more than a horse can understand. But the enemy must have been awfully wicked people if it was right to go all that way over the sea on purpose to kill them. 35. Jerry Barker I never knew a better man than my new master. He was kind and good and as strong for the right as John Manley and so good-tempered and merry that very few people could pick a quarrel with him. He was very fond of making little songs and singing them to himself. One he was very fond of was this. Come, father and mother, and sister and brother. Come, all of you, turn to and help one another. And so they did. Harry was as clever at stable work as a much older boy and always wanted to do what he could. Then Polly and Dolly used to come in the morning to help with the cab to brush and beat the cushions and rub the glass, while Jerry was giving us a cleaning in the yard, and Harry was rubbing the harness. There used to be a great deal of laughing and fun between them, and it put Captain and me in much better spirits than if we had heard scolding and hard words. They were always early in the morning, for Jerry would say, "'If you in the morning throw minutes away, you can't pick them up in the course of a day. You may hurry and scurry, and flurry and worry.' You've lost them forever. Forever and I. He could not bear any careless loitering and waste of time, and nothing was so near making him angry as to find people who were always late, wanting a cab horse to be driven hard to make up for their idleness. One day, two wild-looking young men came out of a tavern close by the stand and called Jerry. Here, Cabby, look sharp! We are rather late. Put on the steam, will you? And take us to the Victoria in time for the one o'clock train. You shall have a shilling extra. I will take you at the regular pace, gentlemen. Shillings don't pay for putting on the steam like that. Larry's cab was standing next to ours. He flung open the door and said, I'm your man, gentlemen. Take my cab. My horse will get you there, all right. And as he shut them in, with a wink toward Jerry, said... It's against his conscience to go beyond a jog Trot. Then, slashing his jaded horse, he set off as hard as he could. Jerry patted me on the neck. No, Jack, a shilling would not pay for that sort of thing, would it, old boy? Although Jerry was determinedly set against hard driving to please careless people, he always went a good fair pace and was not against putting on the steam as he said, if only he knew why. I will remember one morning, as we were on the stand waiting for a fair, that a young man, carrying a heavy portmanteau, trod on a piece of orange peel which lay on the pavement and fell down with great force. Jerry was the first to run and lift him up. He seemed much stunned, and as they led him into a shop, he walked as if he were in great pain. Jerry, of course, came back to the stand, but in about ten minutes one of the shopmen called him, so we drew up to the pavement. "'Can you take me to the Southeastern railway?" said the young man. "'This unlucky fall has made me late, I fear, "'but it is of great importance that I should not lose the twelve o'clock train. "'I should be most thankful if you could get me there in time "'and will gladly pay you an extra fare. "'I'll do my very best,' said Jerry heartily. "'If you think you are well enough, sir.' "'For he looked dreadfully white and ill.' "'I must go,' he said earnestly.' Please, to open the door and let us lose no time. The next minute, Jerry was on the box, with a cheery cheer up to me, and a twitch of the rein that I well understood. Now then, Jack, my boy, said he. Spin along. We'll show him how we can get over the ground, if we only know why. It is always difficult to drive fast in the city in the middle of the day when the streets are full of traffic, but we did what could be done. And when a good driver and a good horse who understand each other are of one mind, it is wonderful what they can do. I had a very good mouth. That is, I could be guided by the slightest touch of the rain. And that is a great thing in London. Among carriages, omnibuses, carts, vans, trucks, cabs, and great wagons creeping along at a walking pace. Some going one way, some another, some going slowly, others wanting to pass them. Omnibuses stopping short every few minutes to take up a passenger, obliging the horse that is coming behind to pull up too, or to pass and get before them. Perhaps you try to pass, but just then something else comes dashing in through the narrow opening, and you have to keep in behind the omnibus again. Presently, you think you see a chance, and manage to get to the front, going so near the wheels on each side that half an inch nearer and they would scrape. Well, you get along for a bit, but soon find yourself in a long train of carts and carriages all obliged to go at a walk. Perhaps you come to a regular block-up and have to stand still for minutes together till something clears out into a side street or the policeman interferes. You have to be ready for any chance, to dash forward if there be an opening, and be quick as a rat dog to see if there be room and if there be time, lest you get your own wheels locked or smashed. Or the shaft of some other vehicle run into your chest or shoulder all this is what you have to be ready for if you want to get through london fast in the middle of the day it wants a deal of practice jerry and i were used to it and no one could beat us at getting through when we were set upon it i was quick and bold and could always trust my driver jerry was quick and patient at the same time and could trust his horse which was a great thing too He very seldom used the whip. I knew by his voice and his click-click when he wanted to get on fast, and by the rain where I was to go, so there was no need for whipping. But I must go back to my story. The streets were very full that day, but we got on pretty well as far as the bottom of Cheapside, where there was a block for three or four minutes. The young man put his head out and said anxiously, "'I think I had better get out and walk. I shall never get there if this goes on.' "'I'll do all that can be done, sir,' said Jerry. "'I think we shall be in time. This block-up cannot last much longer, and your luggage is very heavy for you to carry, sir.' Just then, the cart in front of us began to move, and then we had a good turn. In and out, in and out we went, as fast as horse horseflesh could do it, and for a wonder we had a good clear time on London Bridge.' for there was a whole train of cabs and carriages all going our way at a quick trot, perhaps wanting to catch that very train. At any rate, we whirled into the station with many more, just as the great clock pointed to eight minutes to twelve o'clock. Thank God we're in time, said the young man. And thank you too, my friend, and your good horse. You have saved me more than money can ever pay for. Take this extra half-crown. No, sir, no. Thank you all the same, "'So glad we hit the time, sir. But don't stay now, sir. The bell is ringing. "'Here, porter, take this gentleman's luggage. Dover line, twelve o'clock train. That's it.' "'And without waiting for another word, Jerry wheeled me round to make room for other cabs that were dashing up at the last minute "'and drew up on one side till the crush was past. "'So glad,' he said. "'So glad. Poor young fellow. I wonder what it was that made him so anxious.' Jerry often talked to himself quite loud enough for me to hear when we were not moving. On Jerry's return to the rank, there was a good deal of laughing and chaffing at him for driving hard to the train for an extra fare, as they said, all against his principles, and they wanted to know how much he had pocketed. A good deal more than I generally get, said he, nodding slyly. What he gave me will keep me in little comforts for several days. Gammon, said one. ''He's a humbug,'' said another, ''preaching to us and then doing the same himself.'' ''Look here, mates,'' said Jerry. ''The gentleman offered me a half-crown extra, but I didn't take it. It was quite pay enough for me to see how glad he was to catch that train. And if Jack and I chose to have a quick run now and then to please ourselves, that's our business and not yours.'' ''Well,'' said Larry, ''you'll never be a rich man.'' "'Most likely not,' said Jerry. "'But I don't know that I shall be the less happy for that. "'I have heard the commandments read a great many times, "'and I never noticed that any of them said, "'Thou shalt be rich. "'And there are a good many curious things said in the New Testament about rich men "'that I think would make me feel rather queer if I was one of them.' "'If you ever do get rich,' said Governor Gray, "'looking over his shoulder across the top of his cab. "'You'll deserve it, Jerry,' "'and you won't find a curse come with your wealth. "'As for you, Larry, you'll die poor. "'You spend too much in whipcord.' "'Well,' said Larry, "'what is a fella to do if his horse won't go without it? "'You never take the trouble to see if he will go without it. "'Your whip is always going as if you had the St Vitus dance in your arm. "'And if it does not wear you out, it wears your horse out. "'You know, you're always changing your horses. "'And why?' because you never give him any peace or encouragement. Well, I have not had good luck, said Larry. That's where it is, and you never will, said the governor. Good luck is rather particular who she rides with, and mostly prefers those who have got common sense and a good art. At least that is my experience. Governor Gray turned round again to his newspaper, and the other men went to their cabs. 36. The Sunday Cab One morning, as Jerry had just put me into the shafts and was fastening the traces, a gentleman walked into the yard. "'Your servant, sir?' said Jerry. "'Good morning, Mr. Barker,' said the gentleman. "'I should be glad to make some arrangements with you for taking Mrs. Briggs regularly to church on Sunday mornings. "'We go to the new church now, and that is rather further than she can walk.' "'Thank you, sir.' said Jerry, but I have only taken out a six days license and therefore I could not take a fare on Sunday. It would not be legal. A few years since the annual charge for a cab license was very much reduced and the difference between the six and seven days cabs was abolished. Oh, said the other, I did not know yours was a six days cab, but of course it would be very easy to alter your license. I would see that you did not lose by it. "'The fact is, Mrs Briggs very much prefers you to drive her. "'I should be glad to oblige the lady, sir, "'but I had a seven-day's licence once, "'and the work was too hard for me and too hard for my horses. "'Year in and year out, not a day's rest, "'and never a Sunday with my wife and children, "'and never able to go to a place of worship, "'which I had always been used to do before I took to the driving box. "'So, for the last five years... "'I have only taken a six-day's licence, and I find it better all the way round.' "'Well, of course,' replied Mr Briggs. "'It is very proper that every person should have rest and be able to go to church on Sundays. "'But I should have thought you would not have minded such a short distance for the horse, and only once a day. "'You would have all the afternoon and evening for yourself, and we are very good customers, you know.' "'Yes, sir, that is true.' And I am grateful for all favours, I am sure. And anything that I could do to oblige you or the lady, I should be proud and happy to do. But I can't give up my Sunday, sir. Indeed, I can't. I read that God made man, and he made horses and all the other beasts. And as soon as he had made them, he made a day of rest, and bade that all should rest one day in seven. And I think, sir, he must have known what was good for them. And I am sure it is good for me. I am stronger and healthier altogether now that I have a day of rest. The horses are fresh too and do not wear up nearly so fast. The six-day drivers all tell me the same and I have laid by more money in a savings bank than ever I did before. And as for the wife and children, sir, why are alive. They would not go back to the seven days for all they could see. Oh, very well, said the gentleman. Don't trouble yourself, Mr Barker, any further, and we'll inquire somewhere else. And he walked away. Well, says Jerry to me, we can't help it, Jack, old boy. We must have our Sundays. Polly? He shouted. Polly, come here. She was there in a minute. What is it all about, Jerry? Why, my dear, Mr Briggs wants me to take Mrs Briggs to church every Sunday morning. I say, I have only a six-day's licence. He says, get a seven-day's licence and I'll make it worth your while. And you know, Polly, they are very good customers to us. Mrs Briggs often goes out shopping for hours or making calls, and then she pays down fair and honourable like a lady. There's no beating down and making three hours into two hours and a half, as some folks do, and it is easy work for the horses... "'not like tearing along to catch trains for people "'that are always a quarter of an hour too late. "'And if I don't oblige her in this manner, "'it is very likely we shall lose them all together. "'What do you say, little woman?' "'I say, Jerry,' says she, speaking very slowly, "'I say, if Mrs Briggs would give you a sovereign "'every Sunday morning, "'I would not have you a seven days cabman again.' "'We have known what it was to have no Sundays, "'and now we know what it is to call them our own. "'Thank God you earn enough to keep us, "'though it is sometimes close work to pay for all the oats and hay, "'the licence and the rent besides. "'Harry will soon be earning something, "'and I would rather struggle on harder than we do "'and go back to those horrid times "'when you hardly had a minute to look at your own children. "'And we never could go to a place of worship together.' "'or have an happy, quiet day. "'God forbid that we should ever turn back to those times. "'That's what I say, Jerry. "'And that is just what I told Mr Briggs, my dear,' said Jerry, "'and what I mean to stick to. "'So don't go and fret yourself, Polly, for she had begun to cry. "'I would not go back to the old times if I earned twice as much. "'So that is settled, little woman.' Now, cheer up, and I'll be off to the stand. Three weeks had passed away after this conversation, and no order had come from Mrs. Briggs, so there was nothing but taking jobs from the stand. Jerry took it to heart a good deal, for of course the work was harder for horse and man. But Polly would always cheer him up and say, Never mind, Father, never mind. Do your best and leave the rest will all come right some day or night. It soon became known that Jerry had lost his best customer, and for what reason. Most of the men said he was a fool, but two or three took his part. If working men don't stick to their someday, said Truman, they'll soon have none left. It is every man's right and every beast's right. By God's law we have a day of rest, and by the law of England we have a day of rest, and I say we ought to hold to the rights these laws give us, and keep them for our children. All very well for you religious chaps to talk so, said Larry, but I'll turn a shilling when I can. I don't believe in religion, for I don't see that your religious people are any better than the rest. If they are not better, put in Jerry... It is because they are not religious. You might as well say that our country's laws are not good because some people break them. If a man gives way to his temper and speaks evil of his neighbour and does not pay his debts, he is not religious. I don't care how much he goes to church. If some men are shams and unbugs, that does not make religion untrue. Real religion is the best and truest thing in the world. And the only thing that can make a man really happy will make the world we live in any better. If religion was good for anything, said Jones, it would prevent your religious people from making us work on Sundays, as you know many of them do. And that's why I say religion is nothing but a sham. Why, if it was not for the church and chapel-goers, it would be hardly worth our while coming out on a Sunday. But they have their privileges, as they call them, and I go without. I shall expect them to answer for my soul if I can get a chance of saving it. Several of the men applauded this till Jerry said, That may sound well enough, but it won't do. Every man must look after his own soul. You can't lay it down at another man's door like a foundling and expect him to take care of it. And don't you see, if you're always sitting on your box waiting for a fare, they will say... If we don't take him, someone else will. And he does not look for any Sunday. Of course, they don't go to the bottom of it. But I would see if they never came for a cab, it would be no use your standing there. But people don't always like to go to the bottom of things. It may not be convenient to do it. But if you Sunday drivers were all strike for a day of rest, the thing would be done. And what would all the good people do? If they could not get to their favourite preachers, said Larry. Tis not for me to lay down plans for other people, said Jerry. But if they can't walk so far, they can go to what is nearer. And if it should rain, they can put on their Macintoshes as they do on a weekday. If a thing is right, it can be done. And if it is wrong, it can be done without. And a good man will find a way. And that is as true for us cabmen as it is for the churchgoers. Thank you, again, for continuing to join us for each episode of Storylight. And if you're new to us, we send you the warmest welcome. Whether you're a new listener or an old friend, we at Storylight would be very grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. More than that, though... We would love for more people to be able to enjoy these stories. So please, tell a friend about us. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. We'll see you next time.